Blog Talk Radio. Check out their website, 
CackleHatchery.com for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. How would you like to sleep in on the weekends without having to get up early to let your chickens out? Or not have to rush home after eating dinner to shut your chickens in for the night? And who's had the unfortunate surprise that a raccoon, possum, or fox got to your chickens because you forgot to close the coop? Well, your days of worrying have come to an end. Introducing the Chicken Guard Automatic Chicken Coop Door Opener. Working off either the timer or light sensor, Chicken Guard automatically opens your coop door in the morning to let the girls out and shuts it at night to keep them safe. Tried and trusted by over 40,000 users worldwide. Buy Chicken Guard online at chickenguardian.com or your local farm and feed store. That's chickenguardian.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at idealpoultry.com. That's idealpoultry.com. Actually, in reality, I am Super Chicken. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. Thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. A great show lined up for you today. We've got a poultry veterinarian uh, an epidemiologist, uh, Dr. Maurice Pateski. He's here, and we're going to be talking a really interesting topic today, the difference at the end of the day, really the difference between low-path avian influenza and high-path avian influenza. There's been some low-path detected here in the U.S. last week, and um Someone had sent me over an email about that, and I'm like, yeah, it's low path. <laughs> it's kind of like, that's eh, low path. <laughs> Next, another day. So, so it's, you know, why, why don't we take it as seriously? What, what the signs and symptoms, are, are they different? What is the low path diagnosis, uh, automatic uh, um, calling of the entire uh, farm uh, versus the, the high path? Just, just some general information to know, maybe signs and symptoms to be able to know the difference. Um, some of the signs and symptoms may be the same. The only difference in that may be just the death rate versus you walk out and 400 are dead versus four. So, um, hey, we're going to get all that information today from uh, Dr. Maurice Pateski. Looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to having him on next month. I think we're going to be talking about um, – okay, hang on. Let me uh, get my brain because there's a bunch of topics I want to talk about here over the next couple of months. I think we were going to talk about well, – one thing we were going to talk about, I think, were insects – and oh yeah, insects uh, using insects as an alter- alternate protein source in poultry feed. Uh, I've seen a lot of information over the last 30 days come across my desk through my email uh, about this topic, and I, and I brought it up uh, over the last night we left. Um, I was at a uh, agribusiness conference uh, sponsored by Kalmbach Feeds, and there were dealers from all over the country there, uh, a lot of sponsors and, and, and the whole nine yards. So I was running this by some of the feed folks there and, and uh, very intrigued by it, uh, using insects as, again, an alternate protein source versus the uh, uh, plant-based proteins like, say, soybean. 
And I think the main census across the board was cost. You know, it's new technology, which means it will be more uh, to develop. If they get it to where it's right, it will probably still be more expensive than soybeans. So are people really willing to pay more at the end of the day to have their protein source in that bag of feed they're feeding their chickens from bugs uh, versus plants? Uh, when it comes down to the protein source. Uh, and then, of course, the other things, like, you know, bugs are notorious for carrying disease. How do you uh, alleviate that in the processing of the bugs, to, to, you know, salmonella and other things? And then, you know, people probably don't want to see bugs <laughs> dead or alive in their bag of feed when they open it up. So what, what's the source of delivery? Is it ground up? Is it power out? You know, so, so there's a lot of information, and hopefully um, – Next month, we both can do some research, uh, Dr. Pateski and I, and uh, send them over some things that I've seen. Uh, some of the big boys, I think, have started talking about this, like the Tysons and the Purdue's and whatnot, and then we can come up and have a good show next month about the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We've done the shows like that before, uh, and the challenges presented with using uh, uh, insects as an uh, alternate protein source for uh, backyard poultry, or poultry in general, really. So we're definitely looking forward to doing a show. Also doing a show, maybe the third, the fourth Thursday of next month, and that is I want to do a show, and I made a post yesterday. I guess this is kind of in lieu of chickens in the news today, but I made a post yesterday on my Chicken Whisperer page. It's something that you know I've been aware of for several years now, and I've just never really uh, pounced on it or you know uh, made it public because it's not anything that's secret. But uh, what really kind of uh, made me want to rear its head is that I guess a couple of months ago I had signed on a new sponsor, uh, the Honest Worm, and they make some uh, and, and bring in some mealworms and provide mealworms that when you look at the current, the majority of the worms that are out there available in the little Ziploc bags on the, on the shelf in the store uh, are hollow. They're just a, a basically an exoskeleton that this once was a worm. Hollow. And, and, and the marketing is uh, really just ingenious because you show a picture of all their other competition's products, whether it be uh, the uh, mealworms or black soldier fly larvae or whatever, and they do the processing. I can't remember if it's microwaving, what have you. Um, <laughs> nothing's left but the hard shell of this once mealworm or insect bug. And so... Um, they they have uh, developed and, and uh, sourced these mealworms that are full of it. <laughs> They're full of it, um, full of the gut. In fact, it's 98% of the live mealworm, 98%. The other 2%, the moisture part uh, is gone. But if you look at, break it in half, look at it, it's, the guts are in there. You know, that's the good stuff. It's there. We're providing this for you. Um, yeah, a little bit more expensive. Hey, the old cliche, you get what you pay for. Do you want to spend a lot of money for just a hollow shell, or do you want to Get some good stuff there in the belly of your chickens, per se. So I posted that a couple of weeks ago. This is nothing new. It's happened in the past uh, before when we post something. Um, and I was intrigued again by the number of replies or posts about, well, are they sourced from China? And, and we asked them when we had the Honest Worm on the show a couple of months ago. That was a very valid question because, you know, we're uh, – <laughs> I hate to say it fair and balanced on this radio show? Do I dare say that? Well, of course. Chickens have a left wing and a right wing, so we are fair and balanced. Um, but yeah, so we're asking them the tough questions. These coming from China? Well, how do I know they're safe? 
And even Dr. McRae um, was on the show at that point. She even asked about, you know, the, the risks. How, how do we know it's coming out of China? You know, salmonella free. What, what, what are the uh, hoops you have to jump through? And he stated, I'll quote, that uh, us importing these from China, we have to jump through more hoops than if we if, if we develop them here in the U.S. There's more uh, rigorous testing and hoops they have to jump through, if you will, than if they would have ever raised them here in, in the U.S. But anyway, my point here is I was very intrigued, and we were kind of coming full circle to another show we're going to do next month, uh, probably the fourth Thursday, was the number of people are they sourced from China? And, and so I was like, you know what, it's time. It is now time to just go ahead and uh, this is not a whistleblow because it's not anything anybody's hiding. It's not secret. It's just, I guess, not known. Um, but so so yesterday I made a post on my Facebook page regarding this whole issue. And that's why we're going to do a show. And I think there's going to be an article in the magazine next uh, uh, the summer issue uh, as well. Um, but basically I posted, and I'll just read you the post and find it on our Chicken Whisper Facebook page. I was intrigued by the number of recent posts regarding the Honest Worm product being sourced from China. Why? Well, it showed me that the majority of you have no idea the vitamins and minerals added to most poultry feed to make them nutritionally balanced are also sourced from China. And then, of course, I have a little, uh, you know, hashtag facts matter, hashtag the more you know, hashtag science, hashtag blockbusters. And it's, it's, it is, if you, if you look at it. And, and it's not anything that's, oh, they're trying to save money. Oh, they're trying to get something over us. Oh, they're trying to, you know, put, pull the wool over our eyes. Nothing like that because they're not even available here in the U.S. Um, and so these are things that when they're, when they're making those pellets, when they're making those crumbles, when they're making this feed, this nutritionally balanced, you look at the label, it has all these ingredients, vitamins and minerals and whatnot, and the majority of them, and I'm talking, hey, we're talking, you know, um, you know, the Purina, the Neutrina, the, the Southern States, the Combox. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. It's not necessarily a good or bad thing. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Uh, it's just more of an informational, hey, you know, for you who are wanting to <laughs> get that poking stick and poke every time we mention something, oh, are they from China? I don't buy anything from China. Uh, mind you, they just posted on Facebook, under my post, I don't buy anything from China, on a device that was probably made in China. So number one, talking about the, the poultry feeds, it just is. It just is because some of these vitamins and minerals, they don't even make or produce in the USA. Not even if you wanted to. They're not here. you got to go outside the country to get them. And I know India is a big producer of vitamins and minerals now. Um, there is some in Europe. And then China, obviously, is a huge one. And so we're going to have a company on uh, next month uh, who, who that's, that's what they do. Uh, they have a lot of brainiacs, a lot of scientists, a lot of, I mean, everything. They, China, and their, their company produces and, and provides these vitamins and, and minerals for poultry, all kinds of feeds, but, you know, poultry are poultry feeds. So, so if you're one that said, oh, these mealworms coming from China, but you're going to a big box store, the local farm store, and I said, yeah, I have four bags of that XYZ uh, poultry feed and pellets, yeah, and then I'll just uh, head on back to my, my house. I would say 90%, maybe more than that. Now, guess what? Vitamins and minerals in that bag are coming from China. So, uh, you know, it's necessarily that they're being hypocrites about it. They just don't know. Is it they're ignorant. I hate that word. No, they just, it's not something that's readily talked about. So after this last fiasco with mealworms and people, you know, 
wanting to poke that with a stick, saying, ah, from China, from China. Meanwhile, they're buying and have bought for the last decade, however long they've had chickens, uh, 50-pound bags of feed from the store that, you know, all the vitamins and minerals are coming from China, or a lot of them in there. Can't get away from it. And, again, it's nothing. So we're going to be talking about that next month, too, and uh, we're going to be writing an article in, in the magazine about that. Just, again, that's just nothing to do with whistleblowing. It's just a matter of it is what it is, and this is what it is, and here you go, and now you know. So, um, and, you know, trying to find maybe a feed that's truly nutritionally balanced, designed by poultry nutritionists, poultry scientists, that's best for your birds, that doesn't contain any vitamins and minerals, <laughs> or even from China, may be very difficult. So uh, that's kind of our chickens in the news. I want to share that with you. But next month, we got some great shows that we're getting lined up for. Uh, the insects as protein a source, alternative protein in our poultry feed. And along kind of related to that are the vitamins and minerals coming out of China regarding the food that you're feeding your chickens and, um, and why. So that really looking forward to those two topics coming up next month. But, hey, you're here today. I'm here today. Dr. He's here today. And we want to learn a little bit more about the difference between low-path avian influenza and high-path avian influenza. So let's head right on over to the phone lines, and we will bring on Dr. Pateski. How are you today, Doc? Good. Thanks for having me, Andy. How are you? I'm doing well. One thing I didn't mention, and I probably should have, I was just so focused on these other two super cool topics we're going to talk about next month, is that there also was a very controversial study that was kind of released, I'm saying the last couple of weeks, I just saw it from across my desk, from the folks over at UC Davis, and basically that was that studies suggest backyard chickens need more regulation. You've probably seen it. I don't know if you were involved in it. I didn't see your name mentioned. Um, I pulled it over from feedstuffs.com. I did post it on their Facebook page. And, of course, you can imagine some of the comments we got from the backyarders regarding, you know, uh, more regulation. And, of course, some of them were, well, they regulate dogs, cats, gerbils, and goldfish, and donkeys, and goats, and all this. I mean, we can't even regulate dogs and cats. I mean, and how many people have those versus chickens? You can just imagine. Uh, and then, of course, all the comments about they first need to start regulating the factory farms because that's, have you seen how they're raised? You know the drill. You see it all every day as well as I do. Mm-hmm. But um, So I, di- I didn't mention that in the in the thing, but, you know, it's it, it, it was interesting. And uh, I don't know, I think at the end of the day, maybe to kind of sum it up, it's, it's not a, that long of a read, to say, hey, maybe, uh, I think most sensible people would agree with this, backyarders need to step up their game regarding biosecurity a little bit. I mean, that's really, at the end of the day, I think what this is talking about. Now, some of them did have some valid points like, you know, uh, there's there's no, most of the vets around here or all the vets around here know nothing about poultry, nothing. So so my hands are kind of tied regarding that aspect that may have been mentioned in the, in the study or in the article. But um, I think at the end of the day, just having improving their backyard biosecurity plan can go a long way. And then, I, and I'll lastly say this, and then get your two cents worth, is that um, it's funny when I, when I see all these comments about, you know, staying in my backyard. I mean, nobody wants more government intervention. I mean, I'm, I'm included. But at the same time, <laughs> it's kind of like I've posted this before. Um, all you guys that think the feds are wanting to take your backyard flock, the CDC, the USDA, the FDA, and all these other people that want to take your backyard flock, which, you know, they wanted to, they could have many, many times, but they don't. Um, they just want you to do it right. It's kind of like, you know, maybe if you stop 
kissing your chickens, you know, then then they, you know, <laughs> they wouldn't have to worry do do this. You know, it's like you're going to be your worst. I I think at the end of the day, you're going to be your worst enemy based on you know if you keep doing what you're doing, you're asking for more regulation. You know, clean up your act a little bit, do some sensible things, and then and then we won't have to worry about articles coming out going. We need more regulation in this backyard block. So I think I think this is maybe a common ground here, a sensible solution. But that, that's a lot of times my suggestion, uh, uh, Maurice, is that, you know, keep doing what you're doing, and you're almost, by doing it, asking for regulation, where if we can just do some simple common sense things, then these articles won't be popping up because there won't be any need to. No, we won't need regulation. We won't, you know, you'll get out of your hair and your business because they see that you're doing some pretty simple things in your backyard to maintain biosecurity. I don't know. What, what say you? Yeah, well, Andy, first of all, I completely agree with you. Right? The, the more we do on our end as, as backyard owners, um, you know, the, the less motivation there is to have uh, additional regulations. Um, as far as the article, it's just a classic example of the, the right wing not knowing what the left wing is doing or vice versa, because um, <laughs> I'm not familiar with the article. Do you know who the authors are, just out of curiosity? Or, um, Let me come if you can send me anything you have, you, I'd love yeah. to see it. I will, yeah, it was, um, hang on a minute, I know it was in here because I uh, saw it here, um, just a second, okay. I know. Uh, announcement from the University of California, Davis, let me see who it might be, if there's a name in here, um, hang on, here we go, let's okay. see, um, Catherine, uh, Catherine Brinkley, Brinkley, Yes, yes, I know Catherine. So, um, Catherine yeah, I'd be curious to see it because she does. She, she's a veterinarian and uh, does a lot of work with um, uh, regulations and backyard poultry and, and trying to figure out, um, I guess, best practices and things like that. So, I'd be really curious to see that. But she's an excellent researcher, so I'd, I'd certainly be Great. curious to see the publication and, and what her uh, what her findings are. It'd be interesting to see. I'll email it over to you. And as always, obviously, due to the comments, it was obvious some people didn't even read the article. They just read, uh, and that's just the way it is today, especially even in politics. They just read the title, <laughs> and then they mm-hmm. start commenting. And, and I even mentioned <laughs> that on the couple. I'm like, that's obvious you didn't even read the article, but that's okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'll send it over to you while we're uh, talking about AI, but, um, and then you can follow yeah, through with that. You. But, uh, yeah, today, yeah, today, AI. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, my friend. Great. Well, first, just a couple of things. You were talking about the bugs so much that I can't wait yeah. for next month now. I'm really excited to talk about the work that we're doing uh, at UC Davis. And I'm biased, obviously, but our the group that we have is really unique in that um, we do have, I think, you know, what you mentioned, one of the issues being cost. Um, so one of the investigators in our group is an engineer. Um, and one of the things we're trying to work on, um, hopefully, is, is how to bring the cost down. Uh, but there's some really interesting ideas with, with uh, insects and how to use them potentially as an animal feed and maybe savings in the long run once there's an economy of scale here with respect to water, uh, land use, energy, uh, those type of things. So I completely agree. This is a topic that is really starting to, to take off, um, and not just at a, at a backyard level, uh, at a global level, um, because, you know, the reality is by 2050, we're expecting, you know, over a billion more people on this planet. And um, having the ability to use insects in our animal feeds, especially our poultry feeds, um, it's really interesting. Just on a side note, 
um, being a curious researcher, we were working with, uh, we were mixing some black soldier fly larvae into our feed, and we had this big uh, container of black soldier fly larvae that were dried and ground up, so I got curious, and I, I put them in my mouth, and I was expecting it to have a really strong flavor, and it, it really was just very bland. It didn't have any anything unique to it, so I probably wasn't supposed to try that, but uh, <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. <laughs> So I'll, I'll talk more about that next month, but it, it's really a fascinating topic, and I'm I'm really excited to starting you know that that I'm being involved in this now um, as as I move on in my career. You, you start getting new areas of expertise, and and this topic has has really started to take off. And I'm I'm I think the group that I'm with is you know just we're we're so well rounded, and we have entomologists and veterinarians and nutritionists and engineers, and and you know the the real Challenge. The great thing about universities is that uh, we have experts in all these areas that can really um, try to, you know, optimize and identify best practices and, and hopefully things that will hopefully be really useful uh, as we move forward, um, uh, as we move forward. So anyway, I'm very excited to talk about that. And then the last thing I wanted to mention before we talk about um, low-path yes. and high-path avian influenza is I just want you to know every time I hear that super chicken jingle at the beginning of the show <laughs> – it puts a big smile on my face because it brings me back to Saturday mornings when I was, you know, yep. nine, 10 years old and watching cartoons. And I love that show, Super Chicken. So I, I hope you keep that for that jingle forever because it puts a big smile on my face every time I hear it. That's awesome. So thank you. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad we're put, uh, I'm glad we're doing accomplishing that. Thank you. Yeah, it brings me right back to, you know, sit, you know laying on the couch on a Saturday morning and watching cartoons. So it's a good, happy feeling. Yes. That's awesome. Um, so anyway, so um, when we're talking about uh, low-path and high-path avian influenza, so we'll, we'll talk a little about the semantics in a little. It's really interesting and complicated, um, in part because um, biology is, is not always cooperative, so we sometimes have to have exceptions to rules and um, qualifiers, and, and as humans we want to organize things, obviously. Um, and organization does not always lend itself perfectly to biology. So um, it can be a little complicated and, and confusing. Um, but I want to start off by really focusing on, you know, just the idea of biosecurity again. I know I always talk about this. Next week I'll probably, next month I'll probably talk about it. Um, but I can't stress enough as a uh, veterinarian who focuses on poultry and food safety and disease transmission as, a, as an epidemiologist, I can't stress enough how important, it is, how important it is for us to really focus on biosecurity for our backyard and commercial flocks. Um, you don't have to be perfect, um, but it is essential, especially when we're dealing with diseases like avian influenza, um, to, to optimize our best practices. And, and really what we're trying to do is, is keep the outside environment um, as best as we can um, away from our birds because that outside environment has things like waterfowl and songbirds and, and um, shorebirds and rodents and insects and all different types of um, viruses and bacteria that are present in, in that environment, whether it's uh, living or non-living, whether it's dirt or whether it's an animal. Um, and it's really important that we, you know, we do our best um, to, to reduce those type of interactions. It doesn't mean we have to raise our chickens in a bubble, um, but it just means we have to, to try to do our best. Um, and part of that is, you know, noticing if our birds are sick or not sick. 
um, paying attention to the news because, you know, for example, if there's avian influenza, like they're, uh, they just diagnosed some low-path avian influenza and some turkeys in Missouri, which we'll talk about in a little while, mm-hmm. if you're close to those farms, it's really important to be aware that, hey, you really need to um, kind of button down the hatches now as best as you can. Um, and, and having that knowledge and having that um, connectivity to the news um, in your region um, is really important. Um, because the only way that we really diagnose it right now is by having, uh, for the most part, in backyard birds, is having passive surveillance. Um, so we need people, when they have sick or dead birds, um, to really utilize the resources that they have in their states uh, with respect to diagnostic labs um, and the testing that gets done by that. And, well, and those services are highly subsidized by the, the state and federal government. So it, it, it's, there, are, there are a lot of good reasons to do that. And the last thing I'll say um, before we really get into some of the minutiae is it's, in my opinion, it's, it's so important as a poultry owner um, to be a responsible poultry owner. And, and to me, um, part of being a responsible poultry, poultry owner is when we do have sick or dead birds um, to utilize those services. I think sometimes there's this tendency that uh, some people are, and I understand why, but some people are afraid of diagnostic labs and, and you hear things. Um, that, oh, they're just going to kill your birds and the government's going to come in. Um, So the reason we want to be really, really um, thorough and we want our diagnostic labs to have access to these birds is because they want to basically uh, identify disease as quickly as possible um, because the quicker you can identify disease, the quicker you can um, prevent other birds from getting avian influenza, for example, and, and, and help your neighbors out. And, you know, the, the point I really wanted to make is some of our neighbors are commercial poultry producers, and the implications of having a handful of diseases like avian influenza, which is rare, very rarely get a, a real high path strain, um, but the implications of that are so significant, uh, not only from a bird perspective, but uh, also from a trade perspective. So just as an example, China still does not allow the importation of our poultry into, into China because of our avian influenza high path outbreak in 20, uh, 2015. Um, so the implications are, are huge. And the more of these type of incidents we have, uh, we're, I think, the number one or number two poultry exporter in the world can't remember if Brazil is first or second, but the, the point being that, that the implications are, are it's not just a uh, inconvenience for us. Um, the reality is, is that the virus, these avian influenza viruses, um, do well and they can only replicate in living birds. Um, so the quicker we identify diagnostically what's going on, uh, the quicker that we can depopulate birds. Um, and, and the last point I want to make is that the diagnostic labs are a great service, and the reality is is that 99.9999% of the time, they are not going to do anything with our birds. All they want to do is basically diagnose, diagnose a disease, if it's E. coli or salmonella or a handful of most other diseases. They're going to do absolutely nothing aside from just give you the information that you need. In one or two cases, if they're dealing with avian influenza or exotic Newcastle disease, those are the only situations where um, the scenario of depopulation comes up. And, and, and like I said, in my opinion, um, those situations, we want to be good citizens. We want to be good neighbors to our, 
uh, commercial poultry and our backyard poultry community. And the quicker we can identify that scenario, the more likely we are to save our neighbor's birds, uh, whether they be commercial or backyard. So I just wanted to make that point. I know it's a, it's a controversial topic for a lot of people, um, but those resources, I mean, I know in California, uh, it used to be free to submit birds um, to get a diagnosis because we want to lower that bar. We want to make it as easy as possible for people to submit birds. Um, and, and kind of the program was kind of a victim of its own success. It became so popular um, that now they charge a nominal fee. It's like $20 in, in the state. And in many cases, getting thousands of dollars of work done um, to diagnose diseases that are completely unrelated to avian influenza or exotic Newcastle disease. So it's really important to, um, um, to be aware of that. Um, so anyway, I'll get off my, my high horse and, and we can talk a little about avian <laughs> influenza. <laughs> no problem. Um, Good. So um, the next thing that I'd like to kind of talk about is, so, so th there is, you know, Avian influenza is kind of the, the big general term that we use. And then, you know, us being humans and liking uh, to be um, to classify things appropriately as best as possible, uh, we do talk about the two major uh, flavors, if you will, of avian influenza, uh, high path avian influenza and low pathogenic avian influenza. And uh, the point I want to make, first of all, is that this designation is only for chickens. Uh, it's not for humans. It's not even for, for ducks. Um, there are scenarios where you get the high, path, high pathogenic avian influenza in chickens, and it's the equivalent of low pathogenic in ducks um, and vice versa. So when you think about high path versus low path, it's really important to realize that, um, that what is high pathogenic in chickens is not always highly pathogenic in any other species, including humans. So um, just want to make that point off the, off the top, and we'll, we'll kind of make that point again um, a couple times. Um, the other thing I'd like to point out is that, so when we do talk about high path versus low path, um, that we do have a lot of low pathogenic strains that are, if you will, kind of floating around in the environment. Um, and there are two specific types of low path um, that even when they're low path, we treat them almost like a high path. So um, when we talk about avian influenza, um, we, again, talk about it, whether it's high path or low path. Um, but additionally, we identify it based upon two little proteins, um, an H protein that stands for hemagglutinin and an N protein that stands for neuraminidase. And for our purposes, I'll just refer to it as the H protein and the N protein. So it turns out there's about 16 different H proteins and nine different N proteins, and you can get all kinds of different combinations uh, H1, N5, H5, N1, and so on and so forth. There's about 144 different combinations if you do the math. Um, but the point being that you can only have highly pathogenic avian influenza, as far as we know, if we have an H5 or an H7. Now, where it gets a little more complicated is that we can have low pathogenic H5 and high pathogenic H5. We can have low pathogenic h 7 and high pathogenic h 7 So it gets a little complicated because sometimes we have a H7 and 9 that is low pathogenic, and sometimes we have a H7 and 9 that is high pathogenic. And the genetics of that virus are, are much different than each other, but the H and the N proteins are identical. 
And sometimes we can have an H7 and 9 that is um, low pathogenic. And over time, those H5s and H7s that are low pathogenic can mutate and become highly pathogenic. So um, hopefully I'm not losing anyone, but, but the, what I'm trying to point out is that we can have, when we have a low pathogenic H5 or H7, the reality is we want to treat it like a high path because the virus mutates as a very high mutation rate. And over time, it can become a highly pathogenic avian influenza. And when we talk about highly pathogenic avian influenza, by definition, um, they kill about 75% of the poultry that are infected with the virus. So if we had a low pathogenic H5 and it was causing some mortality, um, then we'd want to be aware that that low pathogenic that we'd want to be aware that that low pathogenic can turn into a highly pathogenic H5 or H7. Does that kind of make sense a little there? Yeah, absolutely. And what, what's the um, mutate time? I mean, that may be a loaded question. So if, if we identify the low path, um, ha have they identified a time uh, mutating like within this, like the same flock? So by the end of the week, or it could get transferred to a rodent that was in there, and then they transfer it to somewhere. I'm, I'm just thinking that it, it has the potential to do that. Um, does that often happen? It can happen, but not often. And kind of a time frame. I was all those were popping into my head when you were talking about that. Yeah, it can happen pretty quickly. So you know, I think if yeah. you looked at the literature, and I'm not a hundred percent, you know, kind of sure familiar with how quickly it can happen. Um, but the, the reality is, is that we've made a decision as a government, and I support this as an epidemiologist and as a poultry vet, that if we do have low path H5 or H7, that we want to eliminate the, where that virus grows in commercial poultry as quickly as possible so we prevent any type of mutation to a high path. Over time, absolutely, it will happen. And, and part of the problem is that the virus is an RNA virus, the RNA viruses are very sloppy at copying themselves over again, so they evolve very quickly. Um, so that's the primary problem um, with, those, with those type of viruses, is that they, they can mutate extremely quickly. Um, and, you know, to answer your question with respect to time, sure, it can absolutely happen in a relatively quick period of time, a week, a month, whatever it be. Um, but as a from an epidemiology perspective and a risk perspective, there, there's no reason why we would want these H5 and H7 low paths to be circulating in our domestic poultry because we basically have a ticking time bomb. And like I said, if you have a really low mortality, if you have a low path AI, you know, the high path AI is so devastating. So you have a huge drop in egg production. You have mortality over 75%. Why would we as a you know, society – um, or as, you know, a, a major food-producing country, we're the, the number one uh, broiler and layer producer in the world, why would we want to have that risk of having a low-path virus that could mutate just like, you know, at the snap of a finger, basically, into a high-path strain and cause that much mortality? It, it, it's just not a, from a risk perspective, there's no reason why we would do that, in my opinion. Um, so that's something we just need to, to kind of be aware of. So, 
big picture, when people talk about high path versus low path, or again, we're just talking about chickens. We're not talking about ducks, for example. We're not talking about turkeys. We're definitely not talking about humans. We'll talk a little about that in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the low path strains, you do see a drop in egg production, but it's not significant. So a lot of times you'll have farms that might have a low path strain on them, and sometimes the farms may not even notice it um, because it's just this mild drop in egg production. Um, maybe they don't see all the clinical signs that you see in high path. You don't see really uh, too much mortality, if any at all, and it just kind of festers in those flocks uh, versus the high path where you have a huge drop in egg production. Um, you've got high mortality. Um, and in those scenarios, um, that's when the state and the federal government starts getting involved. And we have an amazing diagnostic system in our country. I think one of the reasons why we're able to produce you know, so much poultry is that we have such a great surveillance system where other parts of the world don't have that ability like we do to quickly diagnose a disease and then respond really quickly. You know, one of the ways we are really lucky in 2014, 2015 is that we have this amazing diagnostic laboratory service throughout our country that can diagnose the virus within days and then we can utilize you know, the resources we have to um, help these farmers depopulate their flocks and depopulate is just a euphemism for uh, euthanizing all the birds. And again, the reason we wanna do that is because quicker we euthanize those birds, uh, the virus can only replicate in live birds. So we still are gonna have some virus in the environment and in the dead birds, but we're not gonna get any more replication of virus. Um, and that's really important because if we have those birds that are then, um, um, if they're backyard birds or commercial birds or whatever they be, that could be our new reservoir for disease spread and disease transmission. And it's so important to, to kind of squash that as quickly as possible. Um, so things in the high path avian influenza, you know, it's, it's a relatively, if you did see high mortality and you did see a, a rapid drop in egg production, there's only one or two diseases that you really think about, and, and high path is pretty much at the top of your list. The other things that you'll see sometimes, not always, is you'll see a lot of hemorrhage, subcutaneous hemorrhage, so basically what looks like bruising, um, and you can see that um, also some swelling, and you know, a fancy word for that is edema. You can kind of see that in that head area. Um, so those are things that you would kind of look for, um, there's a lot of great uh, outreach and extension material that show you kind of those classic signs. Um, but the one thing I will say, and it, it, it happens a lot of the time, where the, the virus, I always joke with people, or the bacteria doesn't always read the book. Um, so the first clinical sign you'll see in high path AI very often is just death. Um, and you'll see it really quickly, um, even sometimes before and simultaneous with a drop in egg production. And that's when you really want to leverage all the great resources that we have um, at our state and federal level to help us and university level. I and mean, this is what uh, people like myself as extension vets are, are really there to help out with is to help people, you know, kind of utilize all the resources around them um, and how to use those appropriately um, in order to um, protect, you know, the, like we were talking about before, other flocks that are in the area that are unaffected. So the, 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 the final thing, and I don't want to get too, for lack of a better word, nerdy on this, is that you know, it, the high path versus low path um, designation is there, there are some very specific things they will look for. So they will actually look at the amino acid sequence. So amino acids are just the things that make up proteins. 
Um, they will look at the amino acid sequence at this one cleavage site. And I'm not going to go into too much detail about that, but I just want to make the point that there are some molecular tests that they will do. And the last thing that they'll do, which is also, um, you know, I think um, things that can only be done in a laboratory, um, are where they will take uh, chickens that are pathogen-free and they'll inject the allantoic fluid, so basically the fluid um, that these um, um, embryos are raised in. Um, they'll inject um, this, this hypothetically infected allantoic fluid um, into these birds, and they'll see what kind of mortality they get. And they have a very fancy name. They call it the, the IV pathogenicity index or the IVPI. And they have a, a, a basically a threshold if that index is above a certain number, which reflects a high uh, amount of sickness, uh, dead birds, paralyzed birds, um, as opposed to healthy birds. So we do have some very specific metrics that we do use. Um, this being biology, you know, there are complicated cases, like I talked about before, where you can have a high path in chickens that's literally a low path in ducks, for example, um, and that becomes really difficult, and, and the way that we um, classify the virus doesn't always account for that, and I think that gets really complicated uh, for lay people, for veterinarians like myself, and also for, for human uh, people that are really interested in the, in the human aspect of, of avian influenza. So, for example, in China, we have a, uh, an H7N9 outbreak that has been ongoing since about 2013 or so. So that mm -hmm. H7N9 started as a low pathogenic avian influenza. Um, and because of the way, well, and then that evolved into a high pathogenic avian influenza. And that virus um, is the same virus that infected humans. And this is very rare. We fortunately... Um, have not had this in North America, but that high path, that, that H7N9 infected humans, and this is from direct contact with poultry in China, um, and has caused a significant amount of mortality. So this is an Asian version of H7N9. So while we may have some H7N9 or H5N1 um, in North America, we don't have these Asian strains of them. So this gets complicated because people hear about H5N1 in North America. It ends up being low path, and genetically it's not related to the Asian strain of it. So there's, there's the semantics here gets a little challenging, uh, even for people like myself where you have to really uh, kind of ask well, what's the strain and you really want to understand genetically what's going on in addition to the, the H and the N typing of it. Um, so that H7N9 strain, I think since 2013, we've had over 1,200 people that have been sickened by it, and 40% of those people um, have died, unfortunately. So it's, these are serious concerns when we talk about what are called zoonotic disease, diseases. Mm -hmm. Now, in North America, we've been very lucky. We haven't had these strains in North America, in part because we don't, you know, in, in, in Asian, in China, for example, um, they're much more likely to have live bird markets, um, and they use a lot more waterfowl than we do um, for cooking and for, for food production. Um, so those live bird markets, those birds are live, obviously, as we talked about earlier. The virus can only replicate in live birds. Um, we didn't talk about this, but cooking kills the virus and activates it. Um, so in our world, the way that we produce food is a little different for the most part than, than China. And there might be a, a, an increased risk there um, because of how common 
uh, some of the live bird markets are in China. Now, China, for better or for worse, is an authoritarian country. They can kind of put the kibosh on live bird markets and reducing risk that way, and they have done that um, in certain provinces and areas when they do get outbreaks. Um, and that should create some type of um, mitigation. It could break transmission. Um, you can imagine going to a live bird market um, and people from all the farming communities bringing in their live birds and you being exposed to those live birds, that's most likely the transmission route. The majority of the H7, of those 1,200 or so cases, are, they, can, they can link to direct contact with live poultry. Um, there are a handful of cases uh, where they could not link transmission to poultry, and that's where things get a little scary because the what we're about is eventually if a human got one of these strains mm-hmm. of influenza and if a human passed that on to another human, um, then we have the potential for a pandemic um, because obviously humans interact with humans more around the world than they interact with live poultry. Now, that situation has happened once or twice, maybe a little more than that. Um, but at this point, the... The epidemiology there supports the fact that this, these are very humans interacting with each other for very long periods of time, almost like a familial type of uh, relationship where they lived in the same uh, space and were in contact with each other. You almost had to have, not almost, you had a perfect storm happen when you had human-to-human transmission. And if you talk to all the uh, molecular people here, they, they talk about how the virus is not very good yet at um, in going from human to humans because of the receptors for the virus and the human lungs are much lower in the respiratory tract and um, a lot of those type of things. But it's really important to realize that the, uh, the virus itself can mutate, and that's what we're really worried about is that, um, you know, how many mutations and, and, and at what, type, what time uh, would we have some type of perfect storm where you could get human-to-human transmission, and then we're dealing with kind of pandemic-type issues. So um, it's important that we understand, you know, the, the molecular biology of these viruses, and that's one of the nice things, again, about having uh, the surveillance system that we have and that several other countries have, and that we can kind of uh, keep tabs on the virus and understand um, some transmissibility issues as the virus evolves um, and, and continues to mutate. Um, so the virus is, is definitely, you know, I, I think that, that, again, the complicated part here is that we can have these H5N1s, these H7N9s that are low path and high path, and sometimes they're genetically related to each other, and sometimes they're not genetically related to each other. And I think we're still, um, I think if, 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 if I was always curious to talk to, you know, some of the folks that really focus on avian influenza about what other, um, categories, how we need to further clarify it um, in order to make it a little more um, obvious. So we, we talk about these Asian, Asian strains versus North American strains, and for whatever reason, I think that part of it gets lost a little in the media when you start looking at you know, people talking about H5N1 in North America, for example. So the next thing I wanted to kind of mention was just the idea of what happened in, in Missouri. So I don't know a ton about it, um, but there was a low pathogenic avian influenza in turkeys that was uh, just confirmed in the commercial flock in Missouri. Um, and it was an H7N1 strain. So if you remember a little from when we were talking earlier, 
Um, it's a low-path strain, but it is an H7, so H7 can mutate as far as we know. Those are, those are some of the strains that can mutate from a low-path to a high-path. So um, at that point, uh, once an H7 is diagnosed, um, they can make decisions about uh, depopulating that flock. Um, they also are getting slightly um, – they're changing, I think, some of the policies, and, and these are kind of regulatory decisions, which is not my kind of area of expertise, but they are – um, making decisions about, okay, if we do have some of these low paths, you know, how can we help the farmer in the sense that um, what if we um, cook the product and distribute it that way? Um, and I think there are becoming some new ideas on, on how to do that. Um, and I think that's um, in part in response to the, the outbreak in 2014, 2015, where we really wanted to, um, I think before the idea was to just depopulate everything, and if we did have a large outbreak, um, you know, one of the ideas now is how can we be a little more, um, how can we control the disease, but also um, allow um, from a public health perspective and from a infectivity perspective, can we actually have some type of limited um, trade um, or production of, of those type of birds? And, and I think the, the states and the federal government are, are, are working on that specific issue. Um, right. But it is it is it is complicated and kind of an interesting kind of area. And, and I, I think to uh, the federal government's uh, credit, I think they they are evolving um, kind of a more nuanced view of that. In part because we had uh, some difficulty, I think, depopulating all those birds. Um, but yeah, in in, in 2016 or 2015, excuse me. The amount of money that um, USDA APHIS it, it was staggering the amount of money they, and I used to have it on the tip of my tongue when it was a little more recent, that they spent, and, you know, going back to Congress to ask for more money, and they're like, you want how much money? It was it was just staggering. I think, I think some were stating it was the worst agricultural disaster slash emergency in, in United States history, and, um, yeah, the, the money, that, that the depopulation was... Yeah, I think it was issue. like $3.3 billion, I think, was the, the last estimate that I saw of the cost of that outbreak. So it was it was significant. Definitely, definitely was. Hey, Maurice, I'm going to take a quick break here and uh, do a few commercials, and then we'll be back. If you're just tuning in or you tuned in late, no worries. This entire broadcast will be archived as a podcast shortly after we end the live broadcast. But today we're talking influenza and high path avian influenza, influenza with our good friend, poultry veterinarian Maurice Pateski. And so we'll return with more right after this short break. So make sure you stay with us. I'm about to say something that may shock you. There's a chance the mealworm treats you're feeding your chickens are doing them more harm than good. Most of the mealworms sold in the U.S. are hollow and empty because of how they're processed, leaving them with little or no nutritional value. The problem is chickens love healthy insects like mealworms, but there hasn't been a way to get access to them in large quantities. Until now. The only mealworm company I endorse is The Honest Worm because of the way they raise and process their mealworms. Now they've set aside some bags only for my listeners to try for free. Just cover the cost of shipping and handling. Head on over to freemealworms.com. That's freemealworms.com. 
If you don't see sold out at the top of the page, that means there's still some bags left, but only for a limited time. Go to freemealworms.com and get your free bag today. Sweet PDZ has been keeping horse stalls ammonia-free and healthy for nearly 33 years. However, ammonia is ammonia, regardless of the species producing it. Therefore, it will do the same great job in your chicken coops and brooders. Sweet PDZ safeguards flock health by neutralizing and eliminating harmful levels of ammonia and odors. Safe and effective moisture absorption. All-natural, non-toxic, premium-grade zeolite mineral. Contains no masking scents or chemical perfumes. Safe and beneficial to dispose with waste on compost and gardens. Learn more at SweetPDZ.com. That's SweetPDZ.com. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at strombergschickens.com. That's strombergschickens.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFRadio.com. That's GQFRadio.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at hensaver.com. That's hensaver.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer, here to tell you that if you have backyard poultry, nothing is more important than making sure your feathered friends are safe from infectious poultry diseases. Learn the simple steps to keep your birds healthy by visiting this website, healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. That's healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. A message from the USDA. This looks like a job for Super Chicken. You get the super sauce, I'll don my super suit. How would you like a punch in the beak? Actually, in reality, I am Super Chicken. Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Combot Feeds. Again, the difference between low-path avian influenza and high-path avian influenza with Dr. Maurice Pateski. Let's bring him back live now. And 
see, I'll go over to the chat room. I'll go over to Facebook to see if we have any questions from any live listeners, and then uh, we'll let you uh, do what you need to do to uh, wrap up or cover anything else. Great. Um, do you want to ask questions first, or do you want me to have any wrap-up type stuff? Yeah, continue, and then I'll go and see if we got any questions at the, at the different places. Okay. So um, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is uh, for producers that are out there, um, and I think, I'm not sure, so I have to double-check on this, um, for backyard producers, um, but the USDA does um, indemnify uh, producers, and, and that's a fancy word for basically saying if you do have avian influenza, um, the USDA will um, pay you for your, for your birds. Um, and it's a little more complicated than that, but the long story is that the government, I, I think this is a great program, and unfortunately we don't have this in other parts of the world, but the government wants to incentivize people to um, identify infected birds as quickly as possible for all the reasons we discussed earlier, primarily to, to prevent uh, avian influenza from spreading. So one of the ways they can incentivize that is by telling producers, hey, if you have live birds that have AI, we want to know and we'll pay you for those. Um, so fortunately in that situation or hypothetically in that situation, you'd be less likely to uh, um, try to hide any type of outbreak, sell those birds, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a really important program. Unfortunately, other parts of the world don't have that. So you can imagine other parts of the world, um, they would try to get those birds to market really quickly and sell those eggs, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that could um, increase risk of transmission and disease spread among poultry, which is obviously not what we want. Um, the only caveats with that are for the commercial producers, you have to have an avian influenza response plan. And um, you have to have that on record with um, your state or there's um, various organizations that will kind, of, um, kind of help keep that for you. Um, but it's really important for people to have that. Indemnify or not indemnify, it's good to have a plan. The last thing we want to do, and this happens obviously, and we try to avoid it as much as possible, but we don't want to have to think of a plan right during an outbreak because during an outbreak it's really stressful um, and it's really hard to think clearly and, and get um, to, to plan appropriately. So if we do have an avian influenza response plan and that's on record, um, then we're eligible for this program. Um, and it's, uh, like I said, I think it's uh, invaluable incentive to producers um, to encourage them to, uh, um, to, 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 to consider best practices if an outbreak does happen before it does happen. And the last thing I'll say is the virus actually is very uh, sensitive to the environment. It's an enveloped virus. That's just a fancy word for saying it's got a, uh, a lipid uh, membrane around it. Um, and uh, enveloped viruses are actually very sensitive to UV radiation, like sunlight, uh, to detergents mm -hmm. and disinfectants. Um, so over time, um, the virus does not persist in the environment for a long time, like other viruses, infectious bursal disease, for example, some bacteria um, that can persist for a decent amount of time. The virus, actually, if you, if you have good husbandry practices, if you're not keeping things kind of muddy and, and wet and um, kind of having that uh, unideal environment, you, you can actually control it very effectively, um, and it is not a hard thing to control. Cooking and pasteurization are also great ways of uh, controlling the virus on, on food products. Awesome. Um, I know that back, 
back when the outbreak was taking place and people were saying, oh, when the warmer weather gets here, it, it, it'll seem to die off and go away. Uh, but then people were bringing to light that it seems to be thriving over in Egypt and in the Middle East and hot places over there. So a lot of people were questioning that back during the outbreak here. And I, I'm wondering if maybe some of the media got confused between just the, the sunlight uh, and UV being uh, a deterrent versus just it being <laughs> real hot. So, Because or, or, I remember that, and I remember a lot of folks were catching on to that, saying, oh, wait a minute, they're saying when it gets hotter, the chances will go away, but yet it's thriving over in hot places like Egypt and the Middle East, and the, the hot temperatures over there don't seem to be making it go away at all. In fact, they're having issues with it here all the, all the time. So um, I remember that was an issue when we had the outbreak here, when they started trying to not calm folks, but just kind of let them know, say, hey, it's going to be summer soon, and we won't probably see this continue through the summer. So the only thing I'd say to that is, is, you know, obviously Egypt has several different climates. Israel also has a lot of avian influenza. Um, those are Mediterranean mm-hmm. climates, which is very similar to California, for example. We're, we're about the same latitude mm-hmm. um, as, as, as wide portions of the Middle East. So, you know, there is the Nile Delta, and those are wet, wet moist environments. Uh, Israel has some climates that are very similar to that also. And what typically happens, you have, you know, these migratory ducks that move down into uh, North America, for example, for our audience during mm-hmm. the wintertime mm-hmm. to get away from the cold. Um, and those, um, those birds, those migratory birds, uh, interface with non-migratory uh, ducks, mm-hmm. uh, gulls, geese, for example. And that's how the disease gets spread. Um, and then they go back north during the spring, which we're just about to start getting, and they start breeding up there. And the juvenile ducks uh, actually have very high rates of avian influenza. Um, and as they move further down south, we don't completely understand why this is so, they have much lower rates. But that's how new viruses are getting introduced all the time. And I know, you know, in that Middle Eastern area, especially Israel, I mean, Israel is kind of a hot spot of, of waterfowl activity. The Central Valley of California is a hot spot of waterfowl activity uh, during the winter. Um, so, there's a couple things that are going on. Obviously, temperatures are changing, uh, there's seasonal variation, and this migratory-type system. And, and to kind of the larger point, this is the reason we really want to keep eyes on what's happening in other parts of the world because migratory waterfowl are migratory, and they can move literally thousands of miles, um, and they can carry disease. It's an amazingly complex system of how they can move disease uh, all around the world. And some of the viruses that we get are from Asia because – you get interfaces of these different migratory um, uh, flyways. Um, so we can certainly have disease spread and, and new viruses brought into brand new environments by, by, by these migratory waterfowl, and they can contaminate environments and also interface with non-migratory waterfowl, non-migratory songbirds, uh, rodents, et cetera, et cetera, and spread disease that way. Perfect. Hey, I'm going to switch gears on you just a second. I hate to do this to you, but since you're on and, and, and we've got the opportunity to have you on, which is a, just an awesome blessing, um, I've got a listener here who sent me a message, has a question, not about today's topic, but it is related because it was in the news the last couple of days. And while we have a poultry veterinarian on, I thought it might, you know, not to do a whole show on it, just very briefly. I don't even know what her question is going to be. But, um, Doc, it's based on the recent news in Bronson, Florida. The Florida Department of Health has um, uh, confirmed a case of eastern equine encephalitis in a flock of emus. And she is in this area, apparently, and um, she 
wow, she, her, her biosecurity is impeccable. But um, let me go ahead and, if you don't mind, bring her on. I'm not sure what her question is. It's related to that mm-hmm. going on. And I thought, wow, since we have you on, maybe her question uh, can be pertinent for others listening as well. So, uh, caller, thank you very much for calling in. And you had a question about this uh, encephalitis for Dr. Pateski. Hey, Dr. Pateski. Hey, Andy. How you Hello. guys doing? Doing great. Good. How are you? Hey, it's the Boogeyman Beetle Girl. <laughs> <laughs> right, from Florida. <laughs> so my question was regarding this case. I'm actually about four or five hours away from this location, um, and I've been reading in several areas on Facebook uh, the alarm um, regarding poultry and chickens. To vaccinate or not to vaccinate, is this something that can affect my birds? Oof. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to let you down. I'm going to have to plead ignorance a little on this. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I know um, I, 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 there, I know there are um, arboviruses um, that, that are zoonotic, and we obviously um, can find encephalitis in poultry, but I, and I know, we, I know turkeys also um, can be carriers of uh, West Nile virus, and I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually... I don't. I don't want to comment on it because I. These are you're, you're kind of pushing my envelope of what my knowledge yeah, of these types the, of viruses is the West, are. Is the West Nile virus the same as Eastern Equine Encephalitis? No, this, they're different. Yeah, are they they're, different? They're, okay. they're in the same. They're they're carried by. They're, they're considered these arboviruses. So they're um, arthropods, basically blood sucking insects. Can they can be transmitted? Um, these viruses are transmitted by uh, these arthropods to, among other things, poultry. Um, and um, various mammals, including you know horses, for example. Um, but they are they're they're different viruses from each other. Yeah, because I know with the West Nile virus, they have sentinel chickens, and they actually have stations set up around Correct. here in Florida for for the West Nile virus mm-hmm. because the West Nile doesn't sicken the birds. But apparently, from what I read, this encephalitis can sicken your birds and kill them quickly. Yeah. Now the one and... that I point out. Oh, sorry. Go on. And so I'm like hands up in the air. I'm like getting geared up here to you know to vaccinate for pox here pretty soon because um, yeah mosquitoes were out on the last warm spell that we had and now it's going back down again because of the cold. But it's something that I need to do and um, you know do I also should, should I include the encephalitis vaccine as well? So so the one thing I would stress and you you kind of already kind of pointed this out is the control of of, of the arthropod vectors. So any yep. type of control you can do that's that's going to be obviously your biggest bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. As far as the vaccine, I don't think we really and this is again my ignorance potentially, but I don't think we really use that vaccine in North America. Um okay. I, for, for but the encephalitis for, for vaccine poultry, for poultry, yeah. Yeah. yeah, for poultry. Okay. Um, obviously, it gets used for equine, um, but I, I am not familiar with if that vaccine is licensed here. Um, okay. And it'd be something if you send me a separate email, I can look into it for you. But I, I have to okay. Yeah, because I, I actually had a friend here last summer um, over in the next county next door to me. She lost three emus because of the encephalitis. Okay. So I know certain certain birds are more sensitive to it than others. It, it's one of those strange. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know in pheasants, I, I'm trying to recall my um, some stuff I've read about this. I know in pheasants, I think they're pretty sensitive to it, and I, I didn't realize emus. And, and again, that's that's my ignorance on my end. Yeah, it's really sad and unfortunate that they had to do that. They had to depopulate the flock of emus there. And from what I understand, a, another horse was sickened by it too, and that horse was euthanized as well. 
So, yeah. Hmm, interesting. I'll get you. Um, you messaged me on Facebook, and I'll, I'll get you, uh, if you don't mind. You had mentioned it, uh, Doctor Peteski's uh, email, and you can, and maybe okay, he yeah. can get you in contact with somebody that has an answer to your question who specializes in that. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, because if it's something that I should look into, because you know I live in <laughs> the hot zone. It's Florida. <laughs> So it's like a petri dish here for anything and everything to occur. So, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Yep. Thanks thank for calling. You. Yeah. Have a great one. Bye. All right. So I know it wasn't re- not related, but I did see that uh, on Google Alerts, I guess, uh, when it came up, and um, where the eastern equine encephalitis has been confirmed in a flock of emus. In the Bronson area, heightened concern residents could become ill. Um, so, you know, obviously the dip will drain the water to stop mosquitoes from multiplying, drain water from garbage cans, household guttles, buckets, pool covers, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff, too. So, uh, and this was just out, Doc, um, yesterday, so it's it's, it's it's brand new. But, um, but yeah, if, if, do you mind if I give her your um email? No, please. Okay, that would be great, yeah. She works a lot with Dr. Um, uh, McRae as well, and uh, she, in fact, she, wow, she just does an impeccable biosecurity and the black wing beetle and things like her. She just, uh, she's a really awesome chicken keeper. I mean, everything biosecurity, she's very serious and uh, has impeccable birds in her, her thing. So um, I wouldn't do it probably if, if, if I didn't know her, but, but yeah, she definitely can get her the uh, answers. But thank you very much for coming on. Again, folks, our, our topic today, I wanted to take, take advantage of that while we had you on, if there was some way you could have uh, uh, helped her. But um, Dr. Maurice Pateski, we talked about the difference between low-path avian influenza and high-path avian influenza. Doc, we appreciate you coming on. And I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that you're excited about next month's topic, uh, the second Thursday of uh, April, when, um, when we come on. And I'll have to look at the date because... Let me see. I will be. Let me look at April. I'm going to make sure that we get the show done. That's the 12th. Now I will be on the road. I will be in Michigan, and I will be doing some workshops up there. So I'm going to see if I have an event on the 12th. If so, it's probably in the evening. So I don't think the two o'clock Eastern, uh, where our normal broadcast time, will be an issue. Um, so I'm still going to roll with that uh, because that's a weekday, so it's probably an evening event. So 2 p.m. should be fine. But I'm glad to hear you're kind of excited about that. I am too because uh, I've heard a lot about it over the next uh, over the last 30 days. So uh, I think it'll be a great show. We're looking forward to that. Great. Well, looking forward to to being on. And thanks again for um, all your all your work, all the work, all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on today, and we'll see you next month uh, about uh, insects as a alternate protein source for our chickens and chicken feed. So, um, hey, you have a good month. We'll see you next month. Thanks for coming on. You too. Thanks, Andy. Sure. Bye-bye. All righty. Oh, and I also sent you over that article uh, from UC Davis regarding the backyard chickens possibly need more regulation. So I sent that to your email uh, during the commercial break. So thanks for that. All right, that's going to wrap up a, another episode of Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Compact Feeds. And it looks like next Thursday, a week from today, we're going to have poultry scientist and professor on uh, now uh, with uh, Auburn University. 
um, Dr. Bridget McRae. She'll be here next Thursday, and we'll be, uh, I don't even have a topic for that yet, but I'm sure we'll have something very interesting and educational for you to, uh, for you to learn about. So um, thank you very much for tuning in. And again, if you tuned in late, want to hear more about today's topic, this show will be archived in podcast form here shortly. And you can listen 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Don't forget to join us over at chickenwhisperer.com where you can look at both of our books we have available and get that free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer magazine. And I think even our tour stops are up. There may be two more added that we need to do. I think our tour stops are up. Uh, we'll be in Michigan most of April, uh, or most of our stops in April are in Michigan. And I think we have four or five in uh, Ohio. And so we're looking at heading up that way in April, spreading the chicken love. So we hope to see you while we are on tour. We'll see you next Thursday right here on Blog Talk Radio. God bless everybody.